right, hello everyone. Ready? One, two, three. Whoa! This was, is, and shall forever remain the Wheelhouse podcast, coming to you from the bunker in an undisclosed location. My name's Joel Spreadbury, Catherine Bates, Olympian, Commonwealth gamiest. Gamiest? Gam- Commonwealth gamer? We'll World champion, whatever. Hello. Prolific coffee drinker. You love it. You hate a coffee. You hate a coffee. You cannot <laughs> yes. stand a I've 12 a ounces of, of jug bean. of coffee in my hand this morning, so <laughs> well, don't mind me. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, it, it's funny. It seems like just yesterday, we were in Wollongong Wheelhouse podcast. The season was, was wrapping up. Everyone was going on holidays. Rembo, Remco was getting his shirt off and getting some, some rays. Yet, here we are. We're, we're on the cusp of jumping back into the saddle for a new one. We're going to look into how... Different riders approach the pre-season, the early season races, why they make the choices they do, why they train where they do, that kind of thing. I'm fascinated to throw some questions at you, Kate Bates. Also, Australia's gearing up for the return of the Tour Down Under after a very painful two-year hiatus, and there's going to be some celebrity spotting happening in the early parts of 2023. And Grand Tours versus Classics, uh, what means more? for riders, for fans. What do we gravitate towards more? We're going to dive into that. Before anything else, there's a scent in the air. There's, <laughs> I just, I have to go into this first. There's a, a pleasant championship scent in the air. Is it, is it, is it remnants of Jay Vine in the wheelhouse bunker? It is. I hope that's what you're smelling. I was just thinking, I hope you didn't eat beans for dinner or something and you need to open the door of the bunker. Luckily, it's <laughs> cancelling that one out. It's, it's that pure and heroic. How good was it to have the vines in so the house? Special. Jay was sitting in your seat, no yeah. less. Yeah. So after this, you might be able to, you know, <laughs> set a new record up Mount Cutha or something. I'm sitting in a vine bum groove as we speak. <laughs> I, I am sitting in a champion bum groove. Uh, what a great chat, though. What, 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 what? Pretty unfiltered stuff from Jay. Uh, just quickly, your your yeah. highlight. Look, he's firstly, I think when they arrived, you just knew that they were good, wholesome people, and that might not even seem that relevant when you're talking about athletes. But it is so good to see the human element and to have them come into the bunker was fantastic. And they were both so relaxed and uh, you can see that they complement each other so well and that a big part of Jay's success uh, is the work that Bree does um, in supporting. But just his analytical mindset blew me away. I've spoken to him very briefly before, but never in this capacity. But I've watched a lot of interviews that he's done and I'd sort of formed in my mind, especially based on his esports love and reading articles, what kind of person he was and what his approach was. But to hear the way he talked about talent identification, um, there was a, a perhaps controversial comment around the disconnect between NRS, talent ID and the world tour that it should be a lot more about numbers and less about the races you're winning or who you're beating. I thought that was really interesting because I think from the outside, we look at the World Tour like it's so very sophisticated. But he described that in many ways, team recruitment is based on, you know, heart and the team director may have won that race before and so they see an athlete win it and want them on the team. And I think that's a bit of a disconnect. And, and a lack of sophistication. So I like yeah. that he called it out. That's really interesting. It's always good to hear frank athletes speaking yeah. frankly. And it seems that Aussie cyclists have a, a penchant for saying what's on their mind and just, just getting it out there. It's yeah. Good. It's I, good. I think that 
the media will have a love-hate relationship with him yeah. over the years because I don't think he'll always tell them what they want to hear, Yeah, um, which is so refreshing. I love it. Oh, it's fantastic. It doesn't, doesn't fit into the cookie cutter, which is always no. good. Well, which that's is always good. good. But I, 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 someone of his quality is going to back that up with, I, I think, a career full of outstanding results. I can't so. wait to see him. Uh, he did say he won't be riding the Tour de France in 2023. Excuse me? No, I'm kidding. That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> but that, you know, in years to come, I can definitely see uh, he and Pogacar being teammates it's and, be huge. you know, one, two at those kind of massive tours. And in the meantime, there's so much for him to learn. Yeah. Like, it's really cool. And Is he's ambitious. And a day, Pog, do you mind just dropping back and grabbing me a, a drink, mate, or something like that? Is that going to ever happen? You know, it's not. It's not out of the pale. It's yeah. definitely – I think that he's super talented. Yeah. He's super humble. Um, the way he spoke about his favourite riders, watching them race, um, Gilbert, mm-hmm. I like to call him Philip Gilbert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that he fanboyed at his first ever yeah. pro World Tour pro race with Cav. Yeah. Um, you know, like that was just fantastic. And I now forever have a vision of Jay Vine kind of – you know, getting up the guts to go up to Mark Cavendish. Hi, yeah. nice to meet you. So hang on. So he he breached your ban on talking about Mark Cavendish. He did, in but the we bunker. did discuss that, of course, because you know I told him that we were so disappointed. John, yeah, yeah, as, yeah, you, yeah. as you know. But um, yeah, look, the only thing I forgot to ask him uh, because I got so immersed in all of the storylines going on, mm-hmm. lots of tangential conversations, which were fantastic. I wanted to ask him what his favourite coffee shop was. Of course. Um, for riding in Brisbane, because he's a Queenslander, Joel. Uh, Brisbane, of course, as the wheelhouse has declared, yes. has, has proclaimed the coffee, cycling-themed coffee capital exactly. of the country. And yes. his, his family um, are out in Ipswich because yep. he's came from a military family. They were in the Defence Force. west of Brisbane. Yeah, so he was born in North Queensland in Townsville where there's a military base and uh, they're out in Ipswich now. Mm. And uh, so from that, I wanted to ask him his favourite coffee shop in Brisbane. I forgot. Jay, I'm sure you're watching and listening. Please let us know on our socials what your favourite coffee shop is. For the the love of goodness so Kate can get that off so she can tick that off her list. (laughs) Yes. Now – one thing that I love about it, other than the, the musk, the husk that's been left in the studio, is the fact that he's a proud Queenslander. And if, if, if you don't mind, Kate Bates, let's just stay on Amazing Queenslanders for just a second. And Amazing Wheelhouse podcast guests, because there will come a time, I'm not going to say when, we are going to have another legendary Queenslander in the studio by the name of Anna Miaris. Anna okay? Miaris. <laughs> you may have heard of Anna <laughs> Miaris. I'm sure you have. She's been in the headlines in recent weeks with her involvement. In Paris 24 as the uh, chef de mission. Chef de mission. Chef de mission. Yes. I love but, how antiquated it is. I mean, it's pretty much the chief of the team, right? The boss. But the fact that they call it the chef de mission. <laughs> also makes the pancakes every morning as yes. the chef de mission. No, I, no, I no. Joel. What? The crepes. The crepes, sorry. You, now I love a good anecdote. <laughs> the Wheelhouse Podcast is all about ripping anecdotes. Now you've got a, a, a ripping anecdote here. You were there. You were you were in Athens when Anna Mears won her first gold medal. Here's the microphone. <laughs> Tell me everything. Oh well, I'd, it brought back a lot of memories for me actually when um, Anna was announced as the chef de mission for the Australian Olympic team for Paris 2024. Um, The first thing I felt, Joel, was immense pride because I have known Anna for a very long time. Um, 
And I've seen her go through the ups and the downs, not just of her athletic career, because from Olympic gold medals to broken necks, like mm. she experienced it all. Uh, but also through family, through life, having kids, getting married, getting divorced. She's had a heck of a ride. Yeah. You know, she's already got one book. Wait till the second edition is all I can say. And seeing her named in that position, the youngest uh, female ever named, the second youngest after John Coates himself, um, the president, long-standing president of the Australian Indeed. Olympic Committee. Uh, the next youngest was Nick Green. He was mm -hmm. 45, one of the awesome foursome rowers. Yep. Uh, massive. For women, uh, for women in sport, but for her personally, it was just tremendous. So I'll, I'll start off with that because yep. I think when I look back at my career in the sport, both as an athlete and now as a broadcaster, so many of my high moments aren't actually things I've done. Yeah, okay. They've been able, being in the position to witness these incredible things happen. And one of my earliest memories in performance in the sport was in the Athens um, mm. Olympics. And we'd had this big training camp leading in. We were all pretty highly ranked um, on a world level. Anna was ranked number one in the 500 metre time trial. Um, my colleague Katie McTeer and I were also ranked very highly in the individual pursuit. So you could put two and two together and say that we'd go to the Olympics to get a good result. But we were quite young and I don't think any of us had ever really considered the gravitas of what we were there to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down in the village because in an Olympic village, they broadcast every sport. There's a channel for every sport. There's no commentary, but just a live feed so you can watch it. And we watched, uh, sat down on the first night of track cycling, Katie and I on the couch to watch Anna uh, race. And Anna not only won an Olympic gold medal, but she also broke the world record. Mm. And Katie and I looked at each other and, pardon my French, said, holy fuck. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> and we just, like, paralysed almost because that was the moment for both of us that it just really hit us what we were there to achieve and the gravitas of what Anna had just achieved. Yeah. And it was just this incredible moment where everything changed. We went from it being any normal competition to realising that in our hearts, in, in our imaginations, in those of our family, the Australian public, something had changed and it was different. I actually, I, I get goosebumps even talking about oh, it now. It was gooses. such a special moment. How, how did it change your relationship with Anna? So were, were you, you go from being colleagues, I guess rivals to an extent, does she become a mentor? Does she become, what does she become no, after I, that moment? I mean, I think it's an interesting one because to me, Anna's always been a little bit more like a little sister. She's a year yeah. younger than me yeah. and we've always just gone about doing our thing and there has been no... Um, pomp about it. I respect her enormously um, and the process she goes through. But more than that, I think I respect her as a person and yep. the way she approaches it. So the gold medals are, are just something. But she's always been someone to learn from in every way. And I think we've, I, I've been really lucky to have that relationship with her. And the way that she talked about the athletes when she, it, it got announced that she would be chef de mission, that made me proud because yeah. I was like, she's not a 17-year-old girl from Middlemount, um, parents owning a chicken shop. Do you yeah. know? Like, she has arrived. I found a photo. I did some trawling and some digging. Found a lovely, lovely photo of you, Pear. Talk oh, us through this yes. one for those watching so, on. Uh, this is a, um, a photo with Phil Liggett 
uh, at the Till Down Under uh, in Adelaide where Anna and I worked together. And this was the first time we were commentating on the women's Till Down Under. Uh, and this was the first time Anna and I worked together um, in a broadcast, which was really cool because it was also the first time that they had two fem- female commentators mm. um, on wow. the race. And Anna and I then went on um, to work together at Track World Cups and we've done a lot of work together now. But this was a real changing point because it was the first time there were more women on a broadcast than men Yeah. Um, for for that uh, level race. We'll, we'll got to put this one on oh, socials. Oh, it'll be up there. For those this listening is a lo- on, It's a great yeah. pick. Like the three of us were just uh, absolutely thrilled to be able to work in that capacity. The legendary Phil and, Leggett as well, Anna Mears uh, and Kate Bates all yeah. in the one um, room. Wow. And I, I just have to say before we move on that something about the announcement with Anna that became really front and centre, which was interesting, wasn't about the sporting element of the Olympics yeah. and her role. It was about the voice that athletes had, and she got asked a lot, will you allow, um, as the chief, will you allow the athletes to speak their minds freely, to talk about whatever it is? Uh, And a big thing that Anna says is athletes aren't robots. You know, they're living, breathing, they have opinions, they're intelligent. You've got to let them have that. And I think that in itself is a really big step forward for sport in Mm. Australia, anywhere really, where you can no longer say... Sport and politics don't mix. They no. do. Inevitably, they do. And uh, and I think under Anna's leadership, there'll be a really pragmatic approach to allowing athletes to be heard, but also, you know, striking that that right balance. Yeah, it's well said. And look, that's the, the the political side of sport has always been a thing. It's not like it's just emerged. There's just a bigger forum. There's bigger audiences. It's it's everywhere now. It's such a Bigger thing, we're seeing it at the FIFA World Cup. We've seen it over the past few weeks uh, over in Qatar leading up to that. It's just more of a thing. I'm interested in what she said about expectations of athletes from a performance point of view too because when it comes to the Olympics, athletes are they're, they're promoted to us as, as world beaters, as they should be. So the expectations are naturally high from the public. But she's kind of, to an extent, just tempering them in advance. It's You know, I, I often get asked about Olympics, when people find out I'm an Olympian, how did you go? And I still say, and I hate it, but I still say I only got fourth. And if I change my perspective a bit and I think if any of the kids um, got fourth at an Olympics, oh my goodness, I would be like the proudest parent in the world and I would be telling everybody and so ridiculous, right? Yeah. But because you're in the bubble of it, you just it's just another event. You have essentially let people down if you don't walk away with a gold medal. Even if it was never realistic to win it, mm-hmm. it is a strange one. Those expectations are, are, are soaring and they, that's mm. not going to change. It's going to be the same. But I like what Anna said, even from an athlete's point of view, it's good to know the athletes to know to not put that sort of pressure on them. The, the, exactly yeah. what you're speaking about because fourth is ridiculously yeah. brilliant. Well, it's an incredible achievement. And, and to just very quickly hark back to our chat before about Jay. Yeah. That's why he differentiates himself from a lot of the other athletes is there is the emotion there, but he's also very black and white with yeah. the way uh, he analyzes performance and and goals and I think that there is room for that. Yeah. No, you're not a robot as an athlete, but you do have to decouple the emotion to a degree um or you burn out or it's too much. Um yeah, it's it's exciting though. I'm really excited. I, I don't know 
why I, I never necessarily thought that Anna would be in this position, but... Mm. Yeah. You get a bit emotional. You're a bit emotional. You haven't oh, touched just, your coffee for it, at least five minutes. Oh, look. It, it's, I need to stop uh, talking. But they also made the announcement in Brisbane, Beautiful Joel. Brisbane. Yeah. Beautiful not, Brisbane. Not that we're Brisbane-centric here because we're not in Brisbane. No, we're in look, a mysterious location. But I, I mean, I'm a New South Wales person. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to tell by all the para- by all, paraphernalia. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, state pride is a thing though, right? Sure. Because yeah. where we live in, in Brisbane, um, my partner Luke and I, is just around the corner from what will be the big stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I don't know if I'll ever be able to call myself a Queenslander, but I tell you, oh, it's close. We'll get you. We'll get you. I know. It's I think, amazing to oof. see Anna Mears. And look, congratulations, obviously. I, I remember seeing her in Wollongong and she's – a proud mother. She's a normal person. She's still this Olympic hero. I think there's such a healthy balance that she displays. It's going to be so good for the athletes themselves. The reality is our perceptions, our perceptions and expectations of athletes in the Olympics, they're not going to change. We get excited. We want to win gold mm. medals. But the way the athletes handle that pressure and deal with that is the message that she's sort of sending. And I kind of like, I like that shield. So mm. well done. Really looking forward to having her on the show. And uh, take a moment to... To drink my coffee. The eye and drink your coffee because it's. Uh, thank you for sharing those memories. Mm. They're beautiful. So, as I said, the seasons come to an end, and then you blink. Next minute, the next season's next upon minute. us. So, yep. there's been a few interesting things popping up. The tour down under, of course, comes back. It comes back after a couple of years. Da, da, da. And Cadell Evans, Great Ocean Road Race. Yeah, and the women's tour for the first time as well. Uh, we're getting, but, but what excites me here is we're going to see some big names. Coming to Australia to flog themselves in the stinking oh, yes. heat to prepare. Oh, for doesn't that, that event. sound so glamorous? It <laughs> well, it. I feel like the off seasons are getting shorter and shorter, Joel. Like it, they, yes, it was like yesterday. Yeah. So I mean, December is traditionally where it all kicks off. We've just entered December. I hope you've put your Christmas tree up. We did Joel. actually did. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, thank you for asking. Baubles are plenty. Indeed. Um, yeah, we're, we're big on Christmas theming in our house. Or should <laughs> okay. I say, I am and drag everybody along with me. Yeah. Uh, but December means that they'll, a lot of the athletes will go to their first, if not second, training camp with the team. Um, so as an example, Jay Vine s- still signed with Alperson until the 31st of December, uh, but he is going to the um, UAE for team camp in December. Okay. So, you know, he'll still be riding around in his Alperson kit though. It's always, those photos are always really interesting to see in the December training camps because they're still contracted to wear the kit from that team they were in. Um, But it's an opportunity for them to, you know, tweak their time trial bikes, get to know everybody. It's usually the entire team uh, comes together. It may actually be the only time the entire team comes together because you can imagine that once January hits, there's specialist units that go off, um, you know, left, right and centre. For example, at UAE, Pogaccia will have his um, Tour de France extended squad and they'll yeah. do a lot of races and training together um, just to solidify that. And same with the team staff as well yeah. to make sure they know them really well. So December becomes this incredibly important part before they jet set off uh, onto their next races. Some of them to Argentina to start the season where I believe uh, Peter Sagan oh, yeah. and Remco Evanapool are going. Remco oh, look, I'm a well. bit disappointed. I thought, as a big fan of the wheelhouse, yeah. confirmed listener, his words, Joel, oh, no. uh, that Remco might make another trip down under. 
I feel like it might like be sentimental. It feels a little bit like a breakup. I'm sorry to say, but like mm. Wollongong, everything was fine. We had this beautiful date. We danced. Dinner was lovely, and now he's not <laughs> not returning our calls and ghosting our texts, and yeah. he's not coming. But anyway, that's we'll fine. try him on WhatsApp. Uh, <laughs> Can I throw a few R's at you really Ooh, quickly? R's. I'm reading a lot about riders okay. running. Okay, running, 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 running. Mm. I want to ask you about the cross training element yes. in, in this sense. How many K's are you putting in? Because I know that it's all about smashing the K's, getting your butt into the saddle and riding lots and lots of K's. Mm. How much are you flogging yourself? <laughs> Sorry to use that expression again. But how much are you, as a pro cyclist, are you flogging yourself in December? Yeah, I mean, December's all about base kilometres. So base kilometres tend to be slower, long rides, yeah. lower on the intensity. Um, so not focusing on the speed so much as the intensity, the watts, the heart rate, just making sure, I mean, it's like building a house and not one of these um, shoddy builders, Joel, you've got to get the, the top notch ones in yep. um, to build that foundation. So three to four hours a day, up to five to six hours a day at this time Ooh. of year is what they'll do, but it's lower intensity. Uh, the efforts they will be doing will be sub-maximal, more strength built, uh, based. Some of the riders get in the gym. A lot of them um, have quite significant programs around stability and core and that sort of stuff. Um, my memories from training camps at the early season training camps involved a lot of things like, you know, ostensibly said that that, that it was yoga, but really it was kind of a um, pretzel torture I, I was about to say, they threw um, us on a rack. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah twisted you, <laughs> said do 572 yeah, yeah, sit-ups. Yeah, it's a Spanish Inquisition yeah. style of training. Uh, you know, but it's all about sort of getting all of the small processes into place, making sure your bike setup is yep. perfect, doing the hours on the saddle so that if you do need to adjust anything, uh, it's good there. But they're enjoyable, Kays. Like this is the time and these are the camps where you actually get to know your teammates. Yep. You get to actually have good chats and nobody's doing anything so specific. Because, And this is an interesting thing to consider is that during the season, it's a pretty lonely trek. Like you can't do a lot of riding and training rides with teammates because actually you need to have your head in the wind and you yeah. need to be doing specific efforts and it's not like a social ride. So now is the time where they actually get to enjoy riding their bikes. That's amazing. And I, yes. I have to, another, another quirk, it's not a quirk, but <laughs> it's a thing. We, I mentioned a From Spanish an emerging cyclist. A little bit. Well, yes. yeah. And that's what some of these topics fascinate me because Spain, Spain keeps coming up. They all go to Spain. Spain mm. this, Spain that. Mallorca. Why Spain? I, I was about to say, we're going to, but it's a pizza, so mm. it's a bit different. That's <laughs> right. Mallorca, well, there's a lot of reasons I think they go to Mallorca, but the first and foremost is the weather. Yeah. Because 300 days of sunshine a year um, in Mallorca. I actually reckon the camps I've had there, I've experienced every um, 65 days of rain, but, <laughs> you know, maybe I bring it with me. Um, and also the government realised that it was becoming a cycling mecca, not just for professional athletes, but... Um, for cycling, tourism and holidays. So they've put a lot into the roads, beautiful road surfaces. Um, the cars are exceptionally respectful okay. of riders. So there's a safety element. So it's a massive safety element. Great. Okay. Uh, they've got incredibly world-class medical facilities, which is a little bit of a quirk for a small island. Uh, but because so many Brits in particular um, travel there, they've actually got some really good reciprocal um, kind of Medicare arrangements. Oh, wow. I know, it's a small thing. That's but such a rare Well, I, I fractured yeah. my shoulder um, yeah. on training camp in Mallorca okay. and had the best health care. It was amazing from the local hospitals and providers. So 
all around, everything that could go wrong and, you know, they need to think about on training camps the best environment, the safest environment, but then yep. have redundancy and mitigation plans for if things go wrong. Yep. Mallorca is just this perfect uh, place for that. I mean, not to mention the beaches and the coastline, Joel, but it's 312 kilometres around is the longest loop around the the um, island. Yeah. A lot of internal roads. It's th- There's a lot of roads to ride. Okay. So it's just training paradise. Lots of climbs, beautiful road surface. I, I think all 20, yeah. 23 of the world tour teams are, are all heading there. Australians and I think the USA athletes are exempt from going to Spain. I was Only reading about sometime. that. Only Yeah, look, it's they try to not get the athletes to have to fly back and forth too much. Right. Okay, so that's just time in the... Yeah, yeah but I mean, and a lot of the, the reason for them going there for the European athletes and especially the Northern European athletes is the weather. Yeah. Like you can't realistically string together five-hour training days if you're in Norway or Sweden, or sure, even Holland, sure. Germany. Like, you know, it's um, it's tough to do. The Aussies don't have that problem. But they do, you know, with like Jay heading um, for the UAE camp, they do have to tend to things like the technical side of things. Okay. You know, That's and get their 472 new kit pieces yeah. that well, <laughs> they're going to get. All that sort of really important stuff. It John. never stops. It's, uh, I guess, not a lot of time out of the saddle, to be fair, getting back no. in, doing, pumping out these massive training rides, then embarking on a nine-month season. Mm. Um, but, that, you know, it's exciting. It's, good. it's yes. good for us. Well, you mentioned running before, and I have seen a lot of comments from a lot of the athletes that they're doing a little bit of running. A lot of running. Yeah, I've been reading training. about running. Yeah. I run like an elephant. Like I yeah. am not built for running. I did try it. It would only cause more injury um, and a little bit of heartache. So well, it's Remco interesting. Remco is a rider who rates running. Well, he was such a good soccer player, football yeah. player. So okay. I think for him running is pretty natural. It's just what he does. Um, but it's just about doing something different. Like yeah. cross training, really good for cross training is cross country skiing. A lot of them do that. Yeah. Um, I'm yet to meet a pro cyclist and please somebody call me out if, if you know one who's big into swimming, but swimming would be a good really good lungs. way to do it as yeah. well. Okay. But yeah. Opens it up. I mean, they'll uh, stop running as soon as the season starts. As soon as training starts in earnest, yeah. there is no room for. Swap the spikes for cleats things. and get on the bike. Yes. I love that. Well, you've mentioned weather a bit there, son. You've mentioned the warmer, the milder conditions in Spain, but the issue of climate change is. Uh, out and about, as it well should be in cycling, mm. uh, making making some noises about its action plan, the Climate Action Charter. I think there's 80-odd signatories already on that. But I want to talk about um, a big, big problem, according mm. to, and I'm just going to do my my level best here, with Guillaume Martin. <laughs> Martin, oh, Martin. Martin. Guillaume Martin from Cofidis has come out and just and, and, and literally, literally put a very burning spotlight mm. On Grand Tours. So he's written two books. The latter, here we go again, La Société du Peloton goes deep into ecological issues and, and especially Grand Tours. And he's not just talking about the impact, the carbon footprint, which is obviously a huge part of it, but the riders themselves and some of the conditions that are increasingly mm. oppressive that they're riding in. He's saying it's basically not sustainable. Well, I mean, can we just hark back to the fact that uh, this young gentleman has a master's in philosophy? Very smart I mean, it's cookie. a very French thing to do, right? Like they do, a lot of them study <laughs> philosophy, but um, it's quite cool. <laughs> and his two books, um, and I've, look, 
I haven't even bothered to try and be as brave as you here, Joel, um, and murder the titles of the books. I've just gone for Google Translate. So <laughs> um, his first one is called Socrates on a Bike. Okay, yeah. And it's a bit of a wandering tale about what would the philosophers do if they were in the pro-peloton riding the Tour de France? That's, wow, okay. Right. There's an angle you never, (laughs) ever would have thought of. I know, right? It's unique, if nothing else. Um, And the second one is called The Society of the Peloton, Philosophy of the Individual Within the Group. And he talks about riders' individual responsibilities within the peloton. Yes. But it seems to almost be a bit of a defensive um, essay book about how people look at athletes like they're very one-dimensional. But in fact, he's saying we're very multifaceted. Don't write us off as, um, you know, essentially like meatheads on a bike. Yeah. You know, we've got brains. Use us. And so I think his comments recently on climate change follow exactly, you know, his philosophy on all of this, that we are in a position to affect change Mm -hmm. and we need to use our voice. So I love that. Um, So what we've done looking at these comments, because he's spot on about how climate change can really affect the Grand Tours. Already this year, the use of ice vests, the use, um, so ASO were having to um, deploy water trucks yep. to water down the roads because the road surface was so hot it was melting. Extraordinary scenes right? in the tour. It, it really was. And it was a heat wave, like record. I don't know if it was record. I shouldn't say that, but very, very hot. Let's say that. Yeah, and, and there were stories of athletes getting very severely burnt through their jerseys because yep. even though um, they are UV yep. material, protective material, you can't put enough sunscreen on a back through that Uh, For these long days. So it's very relevant. But it comes hand in hand with what happened in September where the UCI put out a UCI climate action charter. I've printed it out, um, Joel, because let me start by saying I desperately want the UCI to be at the forefront of being an example, an exemplary organisation for change. Not just because the bike is so powerful and you know, really has the ability to reverse climate change well, is, in so many ways. As, a, as an instrument of change, like literally get on your bike. But yeah. the sport itself, sadly. Well, and so I, I, I printed this out because I read it online and it just I thought, am I missing something? It is a very lovely marketing document, let me just say that. But it, it has these platitudes Like, we will work together. We will Mm. learn from each other. We'll share insights. About what? What are you working toward? A little bit vague. By activating our communication channels, we will engage fans, communities, spectators, and the wider public on the bicycle's role in climate action and sustainable development. Again, how? And there's eight of these points. Um, And the final one is... We will respect nature and raise awareness of biodiversity's values to people. Yeah. Sorry, but how? All right. So if we just look at the sport of cycling itself against this document that really just seems like it was a high school project, to be honest, (laughs) like lovely marketing document. If you think about the way that cycling does have a massive carbon footprint, Mm. um, we've got to look at the broadcast. We've got to look at the methods. Um, For example, the choppers. If you break down the carbon footprint 
um, of any race, the biggest impact is the caravan, uh, is the choppers and the broadcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it's also the caravan being the promotion caravan at the front where they drive, um, you know, the cars with giant lines on the top toss things out, um, usually single-use plastics and some stuff. Indeed. Um, and then the cars behind, all of the team cars, the media cars, the VIP cars, et cetera, et cetera. And then also the long transfers. So how can they turn this marketing fluff document into actionable change? And I think the things that they've got to look at, um, if we start with a broadcast, COVID taught us that a lot can be done remotely. Yeah. So you don't need every journalist to travel to the race. No, you don't. Um, you, you don't, don't need helicopters. You, you don't need, need you know, well, that's you know. the thing, right? So yeah. it's about changing um, even safety laws yeah. and laws around the use of drones and things like that. And, and France as a nation are very forward thinking. Like they've banned um, moving forward. I'm not sure what year it kicks in. I think maybe 2025 internal flights where if you could get there quicker Within two and a half hours, um, by another mode of transport, they're banning that flight route, yeah, which is exceptional. Um, now, in cycling, it is a little bit different. It's not as simple as just getting rid of the helicopters. They act as links yeah. to broadcast. Like, it is a complicated picture. So, I think that we need to have a pretty balanced approach to how we even criticise Yeah, that's well them. said, yeah. But what can they realistically do? Well, one of the points, number seven, we will prioritise low-carbon transport. That's that's a tangible one. It's like, sure, it still is going to be a huge convoy of vehicles, but at least if they're low-emitting vehicles, that's something. There's one that yeah. we will – I saw one that caught my eye as, as a little bit vague, but we will um, basically ensure that the effects of climate change are factored into our future plans uh, comes in, but there's no how. There's no how, when, yeah, where, Yeah, I, I want that. And I and I suppose they will say that this is just an aspirational document and this is their starting point. And now what they need to do um, is go back and make templates and be the leader, the industry leader. And they've had 80 signatories to this so yep. far. I hope that's more than just uh, ticking a box because you can sign up and do nothing with One of the it, biggest criticisms on climate action is lip service. And yes. this is, is it's an ongoing issue at all levels, at government levels and all of that, and massively, massively in sport. Formula One's mm. a shocker for it, but obviously they've got a lot to uh, to work out. Well, it's, I mean, Formula One, they talk about lessening their carbon footprint by yeah. using sea freight rather yep. than flying, yep. you know, so they get a lot of the car. That's a, they that's a big deal. Change, they change their program to make sure that it can work with Shipping rather than flight. Yep. Are the UCI prepared to change the cycling calendar? Yeah. In line with that, that'll be a bit, a lot of pushback around that. But that, that's the thing. There's a lot climate, of stakeholders needed. There is, and the thing with climate action in general is that there's so much compromise involved. And on this level, in 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 Grand Tour cycling, we actually we are talking about the fan product and how we get to enjoy it and tune into it mm. from wherever we are in the world. But that's it's it's just one of those things that is going to have to work out the spectacle may diminish slightly if you're watching from afar, but that's par for the course, well, I guess. Well, I, and I understand that the UCI is now working on a carbon calculator to roll out um, to all its stakeholders. So event managers, planners, teams, yeah. national federations, so that they can, as a first step, understand their carbon footprint because you have to understand it before you know how to fix it. Indeed. But there's some pretty obvious easy wins. Less travel. 
where possible. Uh, less transfers yep. where possible. Race organisers, I mean, it's a wonderful thing about the Tour Down Under. They go to Adelaide, they stay in Adelaide. And a lot of the starts are very close to Adelaide. Uh-huh. Reduced transfers. None of these giant transfers requiring planes and and whatnot. Exactly. And, and it's a beautiful pretty obvious spectacle. way to do it. Martin has said it. He says that look, it, it's... It is undoubtedly necessary necessary to amend the way in which we organise these major competitions. Yes, we need entertainment, but we can probably entertain ourselves in a more reasonable way. I actually think God, that's I not hope a bad that, quote. I hope that quote doesn't get taken out of context, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you have to oh, take it there? Oh, dearie me. No, oh, look, it's, dearie it's me. It's a fascinating topic. Good on them for, for getting on the front foot with it, but I completely agree with you. There's a little bit of vagueness that... I'd love to see phase yeah. two. Basically, I, I mean, just, I'm cynical, but I, yeah. I think that we've just learnt to be that. But it's, I hope the athletes, and I hope someone like Guillaume Martin leads the athletes in having a big voice in not just, and it's hard because they've got so much going on. They're sure. focusing on performance yeah. to expect them to also then be the advocates. But that comes with a responsibility that they have of their profile. And sport is so powerful. Athletes have such a big voice. And I think that, you know, they can also do a bit more. Um, And led by the philosopher himself. What what would Socrates what have done would, on the <laughs> yes. Oh no, the bike, my beard is getting caught in the spokes. Anyway, <laughs> Kate Bates, uh, it's a fascinating topic and one, as we say, athletes' voices, all of that will stay across it. I just want to have a quick little chat. Classics versus Grand Tours versus the Tour de France. Now, as a as a newcomer to the sport, I as many newcomers are, it was the Tour. My introduction was the Tour. So many start following the TDF as their introduction and that, that spectacle, uh, uh, while it remains a spectacle as per our, our chat just now, is is so brilliant. But the, the classics, the spring mm. classics, the, why are they potentially more appealing to fans and where does the hierarchy sit for riders, I have a few points I want to ask you about. Mm. I just want to get your what's your take off the bat. I think it's a good question, Joel. Nice one. Thanks. <laughs> wow. I was wow. up all night working. You're like that. really good at this podcasting stuff. We should have <laughs> you back. Uh, look, if I could have, if my face was an emoji right now, yeah. we'd have like little love heart emojis uh, thinking about the classics. You do love your classics. Uh, there is definitely a romanticism around cycling, a passion for it that you just naturally align to. So there are some fans and writers who grew up watching the classics and yeah. they just love it and they love the drama of Paris-Roubaix and they love the history of Flanders and of Lombardia and the book ending of the season. You'll never convince those athletes that the Tour de France or winning a Grand Tour stage is better. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you'll have athletes who grew up watching their heroes play out, you know, racing up Alpe d'Huez and sprinting down the Champs-Élysées and you'll never be able to convince them that a one-day race is where it's at. In the middle, you have the athletes who have the physical capabilities to do both. Um, Wout Van Aert, may he be the best example right now, or Pogaccia as well, who are capable of both. That's where I think it gets really interesting because public opinion comes into it where people seem to think one is more worthy of the other. And I think overwhelmingly it falls onto the Tour de France. Yeah. Like it's this beacon that athletes should want 
to win a stage of the Tour de France and that should be more important to them. And I reckon there's a bit of push and shove around that. I think you've said it beautifully. I think that there's there's an anticipation element that makes the classics excitement as well because there's this sort of gap and the athletes are all, are all hitting them in in top form, top fitness, and there's, there's a, an ultra-competitive edge that makes them naturally exciting. All the mm. contenders coming together, racing their absolute guts out. That's the other thing in the Grand Tours. It's like there are riders that certain stages, obviously, it's like I'm just going to – I'll just get through today. Yes, well, as Jay was talking about, just joining Gruppetto. Like, yeah. you know, he was actually very articulate about that point um, that on any given stage of the tour, not everybody's actually there yeah. to race that, and have a goal. They're there to finish. So it's a, it is very different. And there's no GC to worry about in the classic. Like, you just get in, get it done. If you don't get it done, you don't win. Yeah. You're done. You're done. We'll see well, you next Well, and the, year. D, the DNF numbers in classics are far more significant because once yep. you're out of the race... You're done. You're done. You cook, put a fork in you. You're done. <laughs> yes. You're done. I, I, I want to... You, you used Wad. I'm so glad you used Wad and also Pogacar because they are the, the superhuman, you know, just whatever. They're the whatevers. They're the, the whatevers. The, the, the good classics <laughs> riders are... A rugged, and I think there's a more there's a relatable element to these to these guys and girls because they're they're charismatic, they're powerful, they're they're brawny, they sort of they work mm. so hard. I shouldn't say relatable because I can't do that, but do you know what I'm saying? There's there's a there's a, a reachable element there yeah. if you work hard and you get it done. Yeah. Whereas people like Pog who just do grand oh. tours for fun and win them. So but he wins. Cla- I mean, he's interesting because he wins classics too. Yes. And he's like a. Probably more scrawny than brawny. Well, you're seventeen. Said with cousin, all due respect, Jonas is a great uh, example. Podgy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, poor Jonas would get bounced off a cobble. Yeah, um, straight into the ditch. <laughs> Boom out. He See you later. Thanks for kilos coming. Yeah. Wet, as they say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't I'm know. Interesting, yeah. but I think Grand Tour riders like him. They're they're more they're more calculating. They're more tactical. Well, There's they have more to of be. a rah carpe diem and sees the day in a classic. To to win a grand tour, there's so many elements that go into it, but overwhelmingly it's consistency. Yeah. So not just in performance, of course there's that. There's also consistency in your mindset. Day after day you're getting physically exhausted, mentally exhausted. Of course. It's about just keep on keeping on. It's a slow burn. You know, it a... is and it's about doing as many things right as you can. Yeah. To win a classics, to me it's almost like, you can't do anything wrong. Yeah. So it's not even about doing all the right things. It's about not doing too many wrong things. Like at Paravru Bay, trying not to fall off, trying not to do things, putting yourself in the best position, and then there's a bit of a lottery about it. Yes. It's great. Well, you know what that I don't translates know. I, I mean, to. for me, it's classics, right? That but, translates to instant gratification for those watching. The yes. spectators watching aren't waiting two or three weeks to see how it all plays out. You it's know, not, I like there's bringing, no predictability in yeah. in the classics like there becomes in the tour. Like you go yeah. into the Grand Tours and there aren't 20 people who could win. Yeah. I mean, I, I reckon something like Paris-Roubaix, it's like the greatest show on earth. The greatest show on earth. There yeah. you go. I think... I think Merxy. Merxy <laughs> loves it too. And Merxy's you win a rock. a huge fan. The, the, like, it, come on now. Is there a better trophy in sport? Oh, what? there's a, there's oh, a documentary somewhere in that. What's it called again? The the parve the, the parve the no, cobble the, what are we going to call the, the trophy the, oh the, the documentary yeah. oh um the rock the, <laughs> I think that that's can we get used. Nicolas Cage to narrate it oh heavens please no 
Um, what about Dwayne is, Johnson? Can we get him to narrate oh, it? He's too busy narrating literally everything else that ever comes out ever. Well, but at least right. he's familiar. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's got to be one of the best sporting trophies, like just to divert a I'm little so bit. I'm so glad you interrupted me then because I was just about to start doing a Nicolas Cage impression. Oh, it's really please bad. don't. It's terrible. No, I'm not going to do it. Yes, do it. yes. If I ever have Let's to sit rock. through Con Air again. I did it's, it again. It, <laughs> so I'm not doing it a third <laughs> right. time. Classics. Yep. Consistency gets you nothing. I love it. Instant gratification is there. For all to see, mm. I think it's a fascinating discussion and one that we will well, tap into. And look, just from a very practical point of point of view, Joel, how's my talking going this morning? Good, thanks. I think I need more coffee. Yeah. Uh, for Aussie fans, the Tour de France is it's hell. Yeah. Like the hours, if you're watching it live, yeah, yeah, um, yes. and the problem with not watching it live is that you then can't touch a device until you've watched the stage. Yeah, like you can't talk to your friends, you can't open. Um, your email in case you get notified. Like you, you've got to avoid everything yeah. to not spoil it. So the best way to do it is to watch it live. It's grueling. You know, I like to bring other sports into the bunker. Classics. I, I will. It's just one. You know, one go. You get some sleep and you're feeling yeah. refreshed. It's cricket. It's like it's Ooh. Test cricket versus limited overs cricket. T20. There's hit and giggle. There's instant gratification. Hit and giggle. There's excitement. There's there <laughs> hit are and heroes. Giggle. There are heroes that go out and achieve big things in short spaces of time. Whereas test is for the purists. It's yes. five days in a, a grand tour is three weeks. I mean, if we used Hit and Giggle as a documentary name, I think we'd have to be careful about yeah. making ensuring that the rating was appropriate on that one. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I love that I just made this wonderful point about cricket, but you stopped listening after I said Hit and Giggle. That's fantastic. I did. Yeah. I actually did. No, very valid point, Joel. Final verdict, Thank though. you for bringing that up. That's okay. That's all right. Final verdict. GT, classic, one, two, three, go. Classics. Oh! Every day. Without any doubt. Okay. No doubt. I'm still, I'm on the fence. Ooh. I'll get there. Righto. I'm going to do one sitter. more. Let's rock. That's my Nicholas <laughs> Cage. There you go. Can we this move is, on? Uh, no. Yeah, we can. This has been <laughs> extraordinary. It always is. This is the Wheelhouse Podcast coming to you from an undisclosed location in, in a mysterious Brisbane. bunker in somewhere in Brisbane. Uh, <laughs> um, before we'll we again. go, no, no, before we go, Joel, I stumbled this week. On the best, like, long-form article I've ever found um, on eating while riding your bike. Right. Right. A little bit of an analysis. Like, hang on, what to eat or actually the act of no, actually eating? No, well, it was more about, like, how many calories are required. They reckon up to 9,000 per stage in a Tour de France. Okay. It's a lot of Mars bars. I think a Mars bar's got about 250 calories. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yes. So, you know, like, no, no, no. So what's four times nine then? 36. Exactly. Yeah. 36 Mars bars. Right. Anyway, I went to the Parramatta Cycling um, function, the end of year function. A couple of weeks ago, we had Sarah Roy along. That was fantastic. At the end of the night, people were asking questions, like Uh fan questions. And one of the questions was, what do you eat while you're riding? You know, what's the best food to eat? And I remember that for me, my favourite ever um, was baked potato in foil in your pocket. And, (laughs) (laughs) right? And even Sarah Roy was like, that's not a thing. And I'm like, okay now, come on now. It's like, whatever, Roy. Uh, It is. But it came about because in the team at the time, there were two celiacs. And back then, the avoidance of gluten was a reasonably new thing to date myself a little bit. It was, you know, 20 years ago. And there weren't, there, there wasn't this great technology in food, um, race food that was gluten-free. And yeah. so potatoes became you know, okay. a staple. To this day, 
There is not a better food to me than a baked potato squashed in the oven, bit of salt and oil, nice and crispy in the back pocket. Interesting. Best. Interesting. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you before we wrap it up today, Joel, yeah. if you could have like an ideal pocket food for a long ride, what would it be? Oh, lasagna, surely. What? The, Squish hold it on. into the no, pocket and you can The just practicality of that. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me go. How, I love it. How Protein. did I? How did I think that you might give me a serious answer? Oh, no, just say it. Like it's. It's just. It's. You're going to get a handful of it, no matter what. You don't have to fiddle with alfoil and all that oh, sort of rubbish. Right. Yeah. Obviously yeah. not lasagna. I don't know. Is like your a... wife doing the washing, Joel? Because that is a crap idea. <laughs> <laughs> bananas, Kate Bates. Bananas. I'm so big on my bananas. I would just have. You I've kind got of, my banana you're dressed shirt on like today. a banana. B one. <laughs> <laughs> or are you B two? Both, mm. both at the moment. Let's be fair. Christmas kilos. We'll work it out. I, I want to talk more about this topic. I'm, I'm actually because when you brought it up, I was like, "Do you mean actually the act of riding your bike, <laughs> potato unwrapping, alpha? Oh, it's a bit hot. Juggling, still riding well, down it's a hill. Not hot, but yes. Okay, yeah, that's amazing. Yes. I want to, I want to unpack this more because yes. I would think. Even the act of peeling a banana is quite a bit to do. All right. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Okay. This we is, can this revisit this. In. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, hold on. What? We're going to have top five foods to eat on the bike. I can't believe. We're going to yeah. break that down more. There's <sighs> definitely a documentary. In there's that. a great reason to come back to the bunker and join us on the Wheelhouse <laughs> Podcast because there's always going to be something exciting happening here. I'd like to uh, thank you for, for for listening, subscribing, sharing, because I'm sure that's what you're doing, and telling your friends as well. My name's Joel Spreadborough, joined by Catherine Bates. Thank you, B1. Thank you, B2. See you next time. The Wheelhouse is produced by River City Studios for Listener. Executive produced by Luke Mears and the mysterious Merksy. It's written and hosted by Kate Bates and me, Joel Spreadborough.